Welcome to Found Objects with Meaning, a podcast series from Wallpaper Magazine in collaboration with Vodafone Smart Tech, who are creating innovative smart devices that help people stay connected to what matters most in their lives. My name is Jonathan Bell, and I'm Wallpaper Magazine's Transport and Technology Editor. In these podcasts, I'll be talking to six people about their personal and professional attachment to a wide variety of physical objects. We'll be discussing the stuff that surrounds them, the things that define them, and the objects that have inspired them, focusing on something they still treasure, as well as the precious possession they've lost along the way. Whether it's transformative technologies, favourite tools or inspirational artworks, Found Objects of Meaning is all about the creative and emotional force of the objects that we have and the things that we've lost. My guest today is the artist Polly Morgan. Polly specialises in creating contemporary taxidermy, using a palette of real animals and found objects to shape sculptures that both intrigue and disrupt our perception. After training as a conventional taxidermist, Polly has taken the art form in new directions, using techniques like moulding, painting and even 3D printing. Her works combine the familiar and unfamiliar within a totally new context, inviting responses that are always unexpected. In recent years, Polly has focused almost exclusively on working with snakes, creating hand-painted skin and scales that appear to sparkle with life. Her life-size vignettes of reptiles entwined within everyday packaging induce fascination as well as repulsion, pairing the glossy sheen and slickness of a computer render with a visceral reality. Her most recent exhibition, How to Behave at Home, was widely acclaimed, with her work described as excruciating, outrageous and savagely erotic. We spoke to Polly about how objects, big or small, can become important sources of creative inspiration, as well as holders of memory. So last year you showed, um, yeah, you did a show in October, I believe, didn't you? Can yes, you tell me a I did, bit about yeah. That? Um, well, the show had been planned, I think, I can't remember exactly when, but it was, it was just over a year ago, I think around just before Christmas, um, I had been approached to do an exhibition and um, I, I'd agreed to it because it felt like the right time. I was kind of working on a new body of work. And um, I had this working title, which was How to Behave at Home, um, which ended up being the title, um, which was had come to me reading. I'd been leafing through a book about Victorian etiquette um, because the reason being I felt like a lot of the work that I was making and a lot of the work that I'd, I had always made, actually, in a way, was kind of essentially about veneers and about skin and surface or you know a superior surface perhaps disguising an inferior one or or a sort of the, a form of trickery like you have in taxidermy where you're you're making a an animal look you, you, the idea is to make the skin look like it's sitting on a body when it's not at all it's sitting on a bit of wood and wire um the same goes for the casting that I do it's about it's a sort of like a 3D trompe l'oeil, I guess, where you're sort of, you're, you're making the surface look like something else. I do a lot of uh, casting polystyrene at the moment. And so the works look very light and flimsy and actually they're very heavy and durable. Um, so I'm kind of digressing. But the reason I started to look at, I was kind of look, thinking for titles and just sort of generally like looking for inspiration. And I, I ended up online find, downloading this very old Victorian book um, about etiquette, which I see as a sort of metaphorical veneer really because it's like it's a way of us trying to sort of straightjacket ourselves into certain behaviors when actually we probably want to do the reverse um and one of the chapter headings was how to behave at home and being a victorian book obviously the the etiquette and norms were very different then i love the way it it just sounded pleasingly kind of abstract and odd to me because it's just 
well, at the time, it wasn't something we ever think about. I feel like home is the one place where people are able to drop the veneer and be themselves. And so I had this working title and then I started making some of the work and then suddenly the whole world changed and COVID happened and we were all in lockdown. And I had a day or two of just thinking, oh, everything I'm making is now going to become utterly pointless and, you know, the world is completely different. Our priorities have totally changed. How can how can this be relevant anymore or, you know, will it even happen? And then the more I sort of looked at my work and thought about what I was doing, the more I realised quite how strangely fitting it was because suddenly we were all thinking about how to behave at home. We were broadcasting from home, you know, we were all of our... Suddenly everyone's social media posts were from home and all of the all of the kind of the fakery and the veneer that people put on online were suddenly kind of coming into the home in a way because people were they had to sort of well not everyone but you know there are people who sort of like to keep up that veneer I, I feel like our home life suddenly became much more public you know we were standing in in, in the window on Thursdays and um, clapping and looking at our neighbours and we were we were just everything we were all having zoom calls and people were curating their their bookcases behind them on, on, um, on yeah exactly. because they knew that they were being watched by a million people and so that suddenly became a, a thing and I, a lot of the work that I was making was about being kind of restricted in some way or uh, I was making these kind of concrete casts of uh, kind of brutalist inspired building uh, kind of architectural forms inspired by lots of different things some of them were um, uh, polystyrene ends that we have on packaging yeah um, I, mean, that was, I wanted to, to leap in there and say that yeah. a lot of your work is a, is very much about objects and repurposing objects and combining different objects in a very strange and uncanny kind of way um, and you know, what we're here to talk about is objects that mean things to us and objects that we've lost and objects that we've found. Um, mm. And uh, there's a certain surrealism in your work, certainly, uh, that, I, that I sense. But you're also mishing, bringing two very different genres together, which is sort of taxidermy and sculpture. And I wondered if you could um, explain a little bit about the, the coming together of the, the, the found objects and, and the, the taxidermy side of things. I learned taxidermy from a very traditional taxidermist. Yeah, I was never interested in making that kind of traditional taxidermy myself. I can I can appreciate it, but it's not... Um, I think it just doesn't really work on me somehow because it's... Well, for a start, it's... it's there's, a, there's some great taxidermists out there, but you wouldn't know, unless to the untrained eye, you wouldn't know one from the other because they generally what they will do is mimic the natural environment of the animal and put it in a case and... Uh, and, I, and people who've done, they've done that, lots of people have done that very well. And I didn't feel like there was anything I could bring to that. But also, I just feel like you never really truly see something until you see it out of context. And I mean, unless you're a child, I mean, it's completely different. If you're, if you're a child, everything is amazing. I mean, I take my kids to just Safari Park last year and... We, you know, we were just driving along and suddenly a giraffe sort of like loomed and started putting its head through the, the, the sunroof. And I was shouting, wow, look, there's a giraffe to my little toddler who's two. And he just looked so uninterested and then pointed yeah. out a pigeon and went, mummy, pigeon. Yeah. And I just there realized no that context. to him, you know, yeah. Yeah. to there him, no you know, context. seeing it. Yeah. So, so for that, and I thought it's, it's amazing that, you know, those two things are just as fascinating to him because they're all new. And he, you know, he doesn't know that seeing a giraffe is rare yet because everything's rare. Mm. And, so I feel like, f for me, a lot of the work that I was doing, sp 
particularly in the beginning of my career as a, an artist, was about taking the animal out of context and putting it somewhere totally different so that you could actually, maybe it, it would give you the opportunity to look at it, kind of appraise it afresh mm. and, you know, just shake off all the baggage. Animals have a lot of baggage. There's a lot of associations with them. Um, and that's kind of what I was trying to do. And then it, it's evolved into much more abstract work over over time. And I found snakes have been a really great way for me to... I, I guess they're kind of expressive of of just flesh more generally, like the way that, yeah. they, you know, you can, they're long and thin and they're very sculptural materials in themselves. I mean, if, you, if I, I have them in the freezer, when I store them in the freezer and then when I, I thaw one out, I can almost sort of pour the bodies into things and they take on the, the form of whatever I put them into. And I find that an interesting thing because I feel like we do that as humans, you know, we'll like, wh wherever we're living, and particularly this this was very, I thought about this a lot during lockdown, wherever we live, we sort of, there's this quote, there's this, it's a Churchill quote, I think, that says, we, we shape our buildings thereafter, they shape us. And I think that actually we're so formed by the, the environment that we are living in. And yep, I just found that snakes were a very a good way of expressing that. Um, and then I, I, I love to kind of cannibalise my studio somehow and to use the things that I have around me. And again, in lockdown, a lot of things were being delivered to the house. I couldn't go out to the shops. And I'd be getting things with these polystyrene ends and they have these beautiful kind of accidental architecture to them. And also a, two, a lot of them have two perspectives. There's something on one side and something on the other yeah. side that looks very different. Um, so They're a negative, I, they're a sort of negative object, aren't yeah, they? they are, they're, yeah, they're sort of, a lot of the time they are negative space. But when I would put the snakes inside them in such a way, they would kind of, you'd see one view, they would look, they would look one way and then we could turn them around and you could literally just see see a glimpse of it through a window, almost like we were glimpsing ourselves each other through the windows at that time. And I liked the way that there were these two different aspects to the work. Um, and I also liked the fact that, like, to me, like, some people would look at them and say, oh, they make me feel really claustrophobic. And other people would say, oh, we look so cosy, like you're sleeping. <laughs> and I, th I think it's, I mean, obviously it's, it's to do with your character, but I think it's also to do with your circumstances, what makes you think, some people, everyone kept talking about COVID as being this great leveller and it, I just didn't think it was at all because it was it was actually so much shaped by the environment in which we were living. I knew people living in tower blocks who were having a hell of hellish time because they were trapped inside a tiny space with lots of people. Then they were claustrophobic and then there was yeah. others who'd have a nice big house in the country and they were posting pictures of their kids gambling in bluebell woods. And, and so I think depending on your perspective, you look at the work very differently. I don't know very much about the history of taxidermy, but uh, what I I don't know if um, there was a either. point. Okay, I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> if there was a point at which people said, "Okay, we're not going to move on from just presenting an animal in its natural habitat to doing the very sort of surrealist juxtapositions of animals kind of playing games and having tea parties and stuff like that." I mean, that seems like quite a Victorian thing to me, mm. and it's not obviously it's not a fine art tradition. But it was something that the surrealists def definitely picked up on, where you have sort of kittens wearing clothes and things like that, and a slightly perverse side of taxidermy. And and I wondered if 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 that had any bearing on what it is that you do, the sort of moving away from the academic and towards the more frivolous side of things. No, not really. I mean, I think I've uh, it only in that it it was those sorts of tableau that caught my attention that sort of introduced me to taxidermy I think because I as a child I was friends with a girl whose um, 
father collected taxidermy, but he mostly had fish mounts because he was a fisherman, but he had quite a few other like funny novelty things. And he had this little case full of toads in a boxing ring and they were, there was a, an umpire in the crowd. They had little boxing gloves on. And I, I loved that as a child. I thought it was hilarious and I would always want to show everyone who came around to her house. And I think that was my first ever memory of it. But I never wanted to make work like that at all. I was never... I was never interested in that kind of work. And it's not, I, you know, a lot of people talk about it being disrespectful to the animal. And I find that I just, I, I don't have a lot of time for that argument because yep. I think, you know, we, we're, we're foisting kind of human sensibilities onto animals by talking like that. Because animals generally, they don't, yes, some animals, there's, it's clear they mourn their dead, but many don't, many eat their yep. dead. You know, I think, I think that to worry about, I certainly don't worry about what happens to my body after I die. I'm not in yep. any way interested in that. Only, you know, on behalf of maybe whoever's left behind, I think it's entirely up to them if they... It's, it's for them to make that call. So I don't really think that that's something we need to concern ourselves with animals. We should worry far more about how we're treating animals when they're alive than how we treat them when they're dead. I don't know. I think the thing with the history of taxidermy was that it started as a way of educating people because yep. explorers would bring back exotic creatures and they would preserve them somehow and then, you know, try and set up exhibits to, to yeah. show people. And obviously with the, the dawn of like photography and film and things, that's just not necessary anymore. Yeah. So I guess at that point, people started to become free to kind of be a bit more experimental with it. And then there was this famous taxidermist, Walter Potter, who was in the Victorian times, I think, who did all of that. He, he made that famous, all of the kind of kitten's wedding and tea parties and okay. stuff yep. but I think he was just a one-off like lone eccentric really and you know obviously there's been lots of copycat taxidermists since but I I, I think he he's interesting just because of the extent to which he did it but um, beyond that I don't find it very interesting that yeah. kind of taxidermy well, I suppose there's a your work isn't really about death in a sense, because, no. uh, um, and I, that's not to say that all taxidermy is about death. I mean, obviously, death is the starting point. But there's a there's a a moment frozen in time with traditional taxidermy, whereas what you're presenting is a much more three dimensional object and to, and and a combination which is unusual and unexpected. And I and I, I looking at the work, I wondered how you actually went about assembling something because I realise everything is cast including the polystyrene and, and the snakes and it's cast and, and you, do, you do the painting and, and on top of that you're you yeah s- I do it, all of it everything okay. yeah. but you start with a, with one of the moulds and then a snake and then kind of play around with how they're going to look before sort of fixing the shape in the summer sort of early summer last year I had been making these kind of concrete shapes which I used in the, the exhibition but then um. I wanted to do something with polystyrene, but I hadn't, I'd never really found the right shape, I don't think. And I was basically just rifling around skips and things like that and putting um, the word out with my friends if you find anything kind of interesting to show me. I, I was getting given loads of stuff and it was all useless and I was just chucking it out again. And then a friend dropped around a piece. He just bought, had to buy a kettle. His had broken. And it was the end from a kettle. And straight away, I just thought, yeah, that's that's the one I want to make something yeah. with. And he was really surprised that I wanted it and I just uh, but I, I did I just had a feeling straight away that that was a, it was a, just the shape and size and the like the, the relative the two different aspects everything it kind of fitted exactly what I was looking for and so I then thawed out a snake I had which I thought was about the right size to put inside it I then sort of like I was kind of pour the snake inside the cavity in some way and I arrange I say pour I mean really I'm just looping it about and arranging it in there uh until I find a position that it feels right to me. 
it had to look good on both sides. And at that point, I put the whole thing in the freezer so that the snake froze in that exact okay. position. Then I, once it frozen, I popped the snake out of the polystyrene end. I then made a mold of the polystyrene and I made a mold of the snake and then cast the two. Um, and then with a bit of jiggling, managed to sort of get them back inside and then, and then paint them up. And actually, I do sometimes use the skins too on the snakes. I mean, I always used to use the skins exclusively, but I've realised over time that just they're just like a lot of the time I'd start off with an absolutely stunning snake which had this beautiful iridescence and colour and depth to it and then I skinned it I'd mount it on the cast stitch it up get it all set and then you leave them to dry for a good month or so and in that time the they they shed all of the scales come off as the moisture evaporates from them they just lose all the iridescence pretty much all the color the pattern the depth and the scales start to kind of curl up and they it makes a very kind of like crusty sort of rough um surface which is not what it just just doesn't look like that beautiful smooth uh, lustrous snakeskin anymore and some of them weirdly would dry perfectly okay and the ones with very thin skins would dry okay and i, I managed to retain some of the color and the, the and i would sand them lightly and get them smooth again and then paint on top of the skins but mostly they didn't. And then it was from my frustration with that, I decided to just paint because I had a cast that came out particularly beautifully and I thought, why can't it look like this cast? And then I thought, yeah. why, why aren't I just... I think I was just kind of... I had it in my head that I am a taxidermist. That's what I do. I have to use the skin. And then I thought it was very liberating to think, but I don't have to. I can just not put the skin on it. I could just paint it directly on top. So then I had to develop my painting skills and uh, I have been doing that now for a couple of years I've just been practicing the, the painting and now I do it's a combination of um airbrushing with acry acrylics and then okay. oil paint on top and then even nail varnish and so for reference you're looking at photographs or video or I um, mean it's yeah the original that, yeah. yeah and the original snake that that you've used um do, do they survive kind of being thawed and rethawed and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, no, they do. Just... I mean, because before when I just skinned them, I would I would just be able to make one work per snake. But now I can actually use the same snake for multiple casts if it's a particularly beautiful skin. They don't survive that many moulds. You'd have to make maybe three moulds per snake. And, yeah, sometimes I, I eventually use the skin on it, sometimes I don't. But I, I don't always paint the cast the same the same pattern as the skin that I took it from. That's the great, the liberating thing. I can now look at all these beautiful exotic snakes that I'm interested in and I can just copy, if it's got similar yeah. scale configuration, I can just copy them. It does help to have the actual snake in front of me though. Um, so there's nothing, nothing really beats having the real snake because the way that it, it reacts to the light and stuff is all something that you can try and replicate in the paintwork. But you don't actually keep snakes yourself? Not living ones. I've got freezers full of dead ones, but no, yeah. not, not living ones. They scare so, me. <laughs> really? You're not, yes. you're not keen? Fair enough. Well, I mean, no, I am. I think they're amazing creatures. They're beautiful. But um, I would rather not hold one. I, I do. As a child, I used to love holding them, but I got bitten by a friend's one once. It was only a small corn snake. It didn't do any damage. It was just the unpredictability of it. One minute I was holding it, and the next it was just clutching onto my finger. And I, I, I can read. I like animals I can read, like dogs. I need to be able to sort of understand them. And I, yeah. uh, snakes are very unreadable. I, a snake breeder will tell you that's nonsense, but I, I, I've never managed to predict <laughs> not, their movements yet. You're not going to invest the time in learning how to read snakes, especially definitely when not. No, no, I'm very what happy you're with it. To to yeah, I love to get up close and examine animals, and um, uh, dead ones. It's a lot easier to do that when they're dead. <laughs> Thank you. 
For those of us who lose keys down the back of the sofa, leave bags behind or have an adventurous pet, say hello to Curve, the champion of finding. You can find almost anything with this smart GPS tracker, designed and connected by Vodafone. With unlimited tracking, it works on iOS and Android devices. It's the tiny tracker you can attach to your favourite things. To find out more, search Vodafone Smart Tech. Subscription required and terms apply. So you don't, don't think that um, things like 3D printing are, are, are a potential avenue for you to, to work with? No, it's interesting you say that because I have been thinking about that and I, I think for the first time I might, maybe about to undertake a project where I do do 3D printing. It's quite tricky. The thing about the 3D printing, from what I understand, is that if you've got lots of sort of um, cavities and undercuts and things like that, it can be quite tricky. Um, so actually casting is probably still um, a more effective way of doing it. However, there's a work, I'm, I'm moving into kind of outdoor sculpture at the moment. And now that I can actually paint onto the cast and I'm not, I'm not sort of limited to using skins, which would degrade outside. I've realised that a lot of the, the work that I do, particularly with this iridescence, these transfers that I put on them, um, they work so well outside in the sunshine. They look amazing. I'm doing a maquette at the moment for an outdoor sculpture and it's quite a simple shape. It's a sort of art shape with the snake. And I think um, 3D printing would probably be the way to do it. It would be to scan a smaller snake and then, and then enlarge it and 3D print it. What reaction do you want from people who look at your work? I certainly have never... I, a few people have sort of described my work as being shocking, which I've always found slightly... Annoying, oh, annoying just in that I've never, I've definitely never set out to try and like make anything that's shocking or disgusting. You know, if you find it shocking, that's probably because you don't like, you know, you're freaked out by dead animals or snakes. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have snake phobias. So for them, they will react that way. But I really think everyone is so different that, you know, the reactions they have are very, very varied. I think of things that I want to bring into existence, really, and then I bring them into existence. And that's the exciting thing about being an artist. It's interesting because I sort of I'm I'm a real minimalist at heart. Like the work, the art that I love is very minimal. The architecture, and yet, I'm sort of trying to. I've always been trying to find a way to make very minimal taxidermy. You know, but at the same time, I don't want people just to walk past it. I think it needs to. I don't think it's very generous as an artist to sort of make nothing <laughs> I feel like you yeah. have to bring something something new to it yeah. something novel to it yeah. um, so that's always kind of the, the challenge although I do I love minimal artworks but I think the ones that I like they, they're still they're bringing something novel yeah well it's, it's minimalism is about context as much as anything else isn't it and um, and I don't know if you have that relationship to objects in general and not just artworks and whether you're constantly trying to reduce or uh, yeah, reduce I am. I'm not very, it's not, not very effectively. Um, partly because I've got young children and they just bring stuff in constantly. And partly because I make such a mess in the studio. My studio is messy. I'm not very good at being, t I'm trying really, I really want to get a very organised studio and it's getting better. I've had someone help me kind of order it. I live in an old um, and work in an old pub so the top two floors where we live and then the studios my studios workshops in the basement so I go down there and I make a complete mess and then when I come upstairs it, I just really need everything to just be gone I just don't want to see stuff so I yeah I'm really trying to chuck stuff constantly and um, I'm gonna I'm redoing the, my kitchen soon and the idea is just to have as little in it as possible really I, I, but I way. think 
Yeah, I think it's to do with getting older, though, as well, because I didn't feel like that when I was younger. Um, I really feel like the the more you have going on in your life, maybe the more complicated, the more busy you are, the the clearer you need your your surfaces and your house to be somehow. I just I can't if I have clutter everywhere, I find it, it's not conducive to thought, to like to clarity. But a part of the, your exhibition was um, photographs of you sort of with snakes half skinned and stuff like that. And um, that was just the process itself becoming an artwork. And I wondered if you're one of these artists who feel that every stage is something that's worth documenting and hanging on to or as if the actual final finished piece is something which stands alone and actually you can sweep away all the the steps that led to it and it can just exist on its own I think it should be able to definitely I don't think that the process should kind of clutter your vision when you're looking at the work during the process I do find there's a lot of sort of accidental accidentally very kind of beautiful moments that appear or sort of little artworks that just kind of form themselves in front of you. And I I try to just recognise that when it happens, I think. I think sometimes, you know, it's a bit like showing the the puppeteer's hands and strings, isn't it? Sometimes it can can actually demystify and spoil the artwork slightly to see too much of the the behind the scenes. Especially if you're working with illusions like you are. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I think, should I be telling everyone exactly how I'm doing all of these things and talking about how I use techniques in nail bars? And, you know, maybe mm. maybe that's slightly kind of spoiling it in a way, the mystery of how I achieved that. But I'm just too honest and I just sort of say, say spill everything out when people ask me. Um, but also a lot of work these days is context-free because people come across it, not in a gallery, they just come across it online. And they might just see yeah. a piece of work and have no idea of how it's made or who even made it or what time period it's from. And that was also something else you've been referring to as well in our, the way we present things in social media and people always looking for the the perfect image to put on Instagram or the perfect assemblage, um, knowing full well that it is an assemblage and it is a construction. And I suppose that's something that artists have to reckon with these days is that the finished product is always going to be something which is instantly going to be ripped away from its context and ownership I suppose yeah but I think I'm okay with that I've I'm there are I know artists who are very they get very upset if they see their work maybe just someone maybe someone I've known people who sold a work to someone and then they've come around to their house and seen it hung next to works they don't like in or maybe in a part of the house that they think looks rubbish and it's pretty much demanded that they move it and I, I don't really feel like that. I mean, yeah, it's a shame, I guess, if they're not displaying it beautifully. But for, once I've made the work, and once I've, for me, an image of it is very important to me. I have to get some good images of it. And then that kind of becomes the work to me because I know if I make a work, I'm never expecting to keep it. I'm not making it for myself, really. I'm, and once I've seen it and I've made it happen, it's come to fruition, it sort of, sort of cures me of my longing for that thing. And then I can let it go. And I like I love to have documentation of it. And, and I will always photograph it in the way that I want it to be seen. And then it's kind of free at that point. Um, I do think that artwork should be able to stand alone without any of the... Con- I don't like going to a gallery and thinking I have to read reams of stuff on the wall to describe the work to me. Um, I, I, I really do feel like it's a visual language and it's a... It's almost like a sort of telepathy thing. You're kind of communicating something to people without words. 
And so therefore to then introduce loads of words to explain it to them maybe means you haven't done a very good job of it. I also like what you just said there about the documentation being very important. And once you've photographed something, in a way you can let it go. And I, I, something I found talking to other people for this series and elsewhere is that it's something that people often recommend. If you have too much stuff, then actually a, a photograph of it will suffice mentally yeah. for the, as a replacement for that object. And then it's easier to, to let it go out the door. And I find that sort of with sort of children's drawings, for example. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you scan it, and absolutely. Sort of photograph. I it, do it. Yeah. I do it with my own children's drawings. Yeah. Well, talking about going back to my need to kind of declutter, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that my father was a hoarder. And when I say a lot of people say, "Oh, he's a real hoarder," he was a real. He was a proper hoarder. I mean, he had rooms full of paperwork going back thirty years or something. Uh, and when I say paperwork, it was like maybe a pizza a pizza menu or yeah or a circular you know not something that you would ever feel you needed to keep when he died we, we me and my sisters and um and my mum we were all going through the his house and just kind of trying to just getting through all of the stuff was just such a job and it sort of started off and obviously it's kind of quite a painful task to begin with and everything you look at feels like it's got some sort of sentimental um value to it and then you're so overwhelmed with things he didn't have a big house. He just had a very, very full house. You're so overwhelmed with the stuff that suddenly it all ceases to mean anything eventually. And then you'll be looking at something that maybe is some family heirloom that's been passed on for generations. And then you'll be looking at this pizza circular and neither of them have any value anymore because there's just too much stuff. And so we got to this point where we were we were worrying and like discussing every object and who should have it and whether we should keep it and what should we should do with it to just pretty much skipping everything because it was just, there was too much. And I'm not very sentimental about objects generally. I would be just as happy with a photograph a lot of the time. Um, and so I, I really didn't want anything from his house. There was, there was just, I just wanted to kind of get it clear and just sort of be able to move on from it all. But there was this one thing I found going through drawers of things, um, which was a little self-portrait he'd done of himself. He, he kind of, he suffered from quite poor mental health towards the end and he'd been trying to kind of get out and see people and do things. And he'd... Um, he uh, had gone to like these art classes where they were teaching them to do watercolours and drawings. And it was this kind of really naive little drawing, but very sweet and had kind of captured something of him. He looked quite sort of soulful and a bit sad, but just like, it just looked like him, even even though it was in, in quite a naive style. And I thought, I'll keep this. It was like, it was an A4 bit of paper. It was small. It wasn't going to clutter my house up. I just thought, this this is it. This kind of sums everything up. It says a lot about him. This is what I'll keep and maybe I'll frame it. Maybe I'll, you know, maybe when I have children, I'll put it in their room. And um, being a bit disorganised and untidy myself a lot of the time, I just shoved it in the back of my car. And there was quite a lot of stuff in the back of my car. And I think it was probably there for a good month or so because I just wasn't really sure what to do with it or where to put it. And I kept thinking maybe I'd drop it off at a framers at some point. And then one day I popped out and I came back home and I got I got in my car to go somewhere and the car was absolutely spotless. <laughs> and I leapt out the car and went running inside to, um, and like yelled up to Matt, my boyfriend, was like, Matt, Matt, what have you, what's happened to the car? And he said, oh, I took it to the valet for you. It was just a complete tip. I, I got it all cleaned out. And like, my heart just kind of sank and I went, and what happened to the stuff inside it? And he went, I, he said, there was just loads of crap on the floor. It was just like, you know, empty coffee cups and stuff. And I just knew at that point that, he, you know, that the drawing had gone and I, and I asked him and he said, I look, I, I have no idea. There was a, I didn't, I didn't look at anything. It just looked like rubbish to me. And, and it was gone. 
and I feel like I photographed it and I went back over my phone and I couldn't find the photograph anywhere and and it's the one thing that's still now and it, this is probably coming on for like seven eight years ago now seven years ago but still if I think about it, even talking about it now I get a bit of a like ah thing and I really don't get that everything I've moved on from everything that I've lost really in my life I've lost valuable bits of jewelry and I'm just like oh well you know I'll get another one one day but this is something that was really irreplaceable and yeah that that has been tricky for me and I do wish I could at least find the photograph of it but I think it's important to be able to move on from those things it serves a purpose in a way because to put everything into that one object distracts from all the other things that we kind of lose and miss on a daily basis and actually maybe it has more of an emotional power because you did lose it and you as a result you were yeah you're right and probably if I kept it it would have stayed in the back of the car for another six months and then it would go in the bottom of a drawer and I probably wouldn't have framed it and yeah you're quite right and that's a lot of the time what happens to things like that I, I never quite know I know that they sort of have some significance or should have some significance to me but I I don't really know quite what I'm meant to do with them. Yeah. And I don't I don't yeah. often frame pictures and put them up on the wall that often anyway, so So it was it was fraught with potential, <coughs> but the potential never, yeah. never came. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly and it would just be one of those things that, you know, one day my children will be leaping through thinking like, what do we do with this? So I've spared them that at least. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's another recurring theme is that this need to free ourselves of stuff is when I, one looks at one of its own parents and the younger generation and how little the um, values that we attribute to things and our parents attribute to things and our children attribute to things um, yeah. how little they intersect really the crossover yeah. the Venn diagram between the three is very tiny very um, so Polly this has been really great and lovely to talk to you thank you very much indeed for joining the Wallpaper Podcast oh, you're welcome it's been nice thank you Thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode of Found Objects of Meaning, please subscribe, leave a review and be sure to share it with your friends. I'd like to thank our guest and also our collaborators, Vodafone Smart Tech, who are creating innovative smart devices that help people stay connected to what matters most in their lives. Search for Vodafone Smart Tech to discover more. Wallpaper Magazine is the global authority on all things about contemporary design and new creativity. To find out more about us, head to wallpaper.com. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.